Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1 and James chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1 and James chapter 1. Peter is writing to the church by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. I, I like to say it this way. The Holy Ghost said through Peter. Grace and peace, this beginning in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I won't, let's talk a little bit and define our terms. Grace has a lot of different uh, definitions. Probably the most uh, common definition is unmerited favor. I don't like that definition. But the reason I don't like it is not because it isn't true, but because if you focus on that definition, you're really looking at yourself more than you are God. Because the unmerited stands out in those two words rather than the favor. So we know that the grace of God, somebody defined the grace of God, and like I said, there's a lot of ways you can define it. Somebody defined the grace of God as God's willingness to use his power toward toward mankind. God's willingness to use his power toward mankind. That's a good definition. That has to be true. Another definition, uh, one that I particularly like, is since we know that whatever God does for mankind is a result of the finished and complete work of Jesus, you could define the grace of God as the finished work of Jesus and everything that that includes. In other words, it's saying everything that God can do and will do and wants to do for you is available through one and only one means, and that's through the knowledge of God and through Jesus Christ. Peace the Greek word peace means the divine influence on the heart and the reflection in the life. It's the closest thing that we can get to the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom, which means well-being in every area. So let's use those definitions and insert those definitions to see what Peter's trying to tell us by the Holy Ghost. He's saying everything that Jesus did for you, everything Jesus died for, everything Jesus provided for you through his death, burial, and resurrection, and well-being in every area, belong to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, folks, that knowledge has got to be something more than just knowing God is. Because if it was just a matter of knowing God is or knowing enough about Jesus to accept salvation, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then every Christian would be riding high in this earth. Every Christian would have well-being in every area. Every Christian would have healing, which was provided for through the shed blood of Jesus. Every Christian would have Abundance, which the Bible said Jesus was made poor for your sakes, that you through his poverty might be made rich. These things would be an automatic. They'd be a given. They'd be a guarantee. If it just came down to the knowledge that Jesus died for your sins, if that's what the knowledge of God and of Jesus is talking about, then why is the church in such a mess? And why do Christians struggle to walk in the blessings of God? It's got to be something more than that. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our, our Lord. I, I want you to notice the word multiplied. It doesn't say added to. It says multiplied. There seems to be an ever-increasing, an exponentially increasing means of walking in the blessings of God as you grow in knowledge. If that's not true, then what did he mean? Why didn't he just say grace and peace are available to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus? No, he's talking about an exponential increase that comes through growing in the knowledge of God and of Jesus. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power has 
already, past tense, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life, unto life in godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. From God's perspective, as spoken by the Holy Ghost through Peter, God's work's already done. Everything that provides peace, life, well-being, healing, blessing, abundance, Everything that Jesus provided for you has already been done. It's already been accomplished. It's already available through the divine power and displayed through the resurrection of Jesus our Lord. It's available, but it's still contingent upon knowledge. So grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord because according to, according as his divine power hath given unto us, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us into glory and virtue. It's already yours. It's already available. But you take hold of it through the growth and development in the knowledge of God. Whereby, for this reason, because his divine power has already given us everything that we'll ever need, everything to, to put us over in life, everything to rescue us, to provide deliverance from any situation we ever find ourselves in, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. He's talking about the word of God. That by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now when Peter writes this, there's not a Bible. There's no such thing as a Bible. Peter refers to some of the letters that Paul wrote to the church So these letters have been widely circulated. So the exceeding great and precious promises that Peter's talking about have not even been collected into a volume or a set or a collection that we know of as the Bible. And yet even without a Bible, Peter recognizes and tells us by the Holy Ghost, of course the Holy Ghost knew his plan to save these letters and to provide a Bible for you and me. Peter tells us that these promises are sufficient for us to enter into everything that Jesus provided for us through his death, burial, and resurrection so that we can survive and thrive and walk in victory in every area of life. But now what does that look like? Look with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 beginning in verse... uh, Well, it's beginning in verse 21. James writing by the Holy Ghost, or again, the Holy Ghost said through James, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That first part of the verse is really tough for me as far as the translation is concerned. What he's talking about, the essence of what he's talking about, is lay aside the the hindrances of of the world and the things that the world will try to do to stop you and and hold you back. Lay aside the things of the world and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now, folks, I would submit to you that he's already talking to people that are saved. So the souls he's talking about cannot be the spirit. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. These are new creatures. In Christ Jesus that he's writing to. He says old things have passed away and behold all things have become new. 
Well, we know physical things don't become new when you get saved. We know mental things don't become new when you get saved. If you have an interest or an aptitude in a certain area before you get saved, you still have the same interest. Sometimes it's even heightened. You still have the same aptitudes, maybe even enhanced. So the things of the, the, the spirit have become new, but not the things of the soul, the bind, the will, of the emotions, and not the things of the flesh, the body. So here he says that receiving with meekness, meekness means to be willing to be taught, receiving with meekness the engrafted word, the engrafted word means the word planted and held tightly, held dearly to your soul, I mean to your spirit within your heart. Receiving with meekness the engrafted word is able to save your souls. It's able to save your souls. It's able to transform you in your mental capacities. It's able to, re- to transform and renew your mind. That's what he's talking about. So he says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now notice the one thing that the Bible's talking about here. starts talking about, and he's going to expand on this, uh, this thought, this... Um, Well, this thought. He's going to expand on the idea that the mind needs to be renewed. He's going to expand on the idea that something in the the minds, in the the soulish realm of every believer needs to be changed. Now, what's what's the necessity for that or what's the reasoning behind that? He tells us beginning in verse 22, he says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I want you to notice that he's going to talk about several times in this passage of Scripture, deceiving yourself. He calls it deceiving yourself in verse 22. He calls it, uh, uh, where is it? Verse 25, he talks about deceiving his own heart. The person deceiving his own heart. Now notice what he said, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's got to be more to the renewing of the mind. There's got to be more to the saving of the soul. There's got to be more to this transformation that he's looking for every believer to undergo than just hearing the word of God. There's got to be more. Because he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. But be ye doers, I'm sorry, read verse 22 again. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. He being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not. Bridleth means to control. Rideleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Now, verse 25 is important because it tells you what uh, the difference is between forgetting what you look like in the mirror of God's word and continuing therein. There's, uh, There's a fact that's been discovered long ago in the business world, and that is in order for a man to achieve success man, woman, anybody, in order for success to be achieved, it really has less to do with the abilities of the individual and more to do, it's more important, how that person sees themselves. 
And there are a lot of gimmicks out there and a lot of self-help books and tape series and programs and stuff like that to try to trick people into thinking or seeing themselves in a way that they don't ordinarily see themselves now. And it rarely works. But the Bible is telling us something that's very important. The world has tapped into a truth. And that is how you see yourself is how you will be. And that's what James is talking about here. James is talking about the person that sees themselves in the word of God, but then forgets what they, what they look like, forgets who they are, in other words, according to the word of God. Then he'll never walk in the blessings of God. But the man that sees himself like the word says that, that he is and continues to see himself in that manner, that person's going to have success. That person's going to achieve the transformation that comes through the renewing of the mind. It comes down to what you see yourself to be. Now, how does that work? Well, verse 25 tells you the key. If any man seems to be religious, in other words, if anyone looks on the outside like they've got it together, but they don't control their tongue, then their religion is vain. So the tongue's got something to do with this transformation. It has to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the controlling factor between the real thing and that which looks to be real but isn't. So James says, if any man sees himself in the word but forgets what he looks like when the pressure's on, have you ever noticed how easy it is to believe God when we're all together and in the presence of the Lord and praising God and all that kind of stuff? You can go to these big meetings. I remember those meetings that we'd have with Brother Hagin, crusades and so forth around the country. Man, I mean, the, the, the faith level in those meetings was high. People had traveled in from all over the country to get to these places. And I mean, everybody was excited. Everybody was expectant. You could believe God for anything in those meetings. Meeting was over and you had to go home and you could almost fly home without an airplane. Then you get back home and life sets in. What are you, what are you going to do? You can remember just last week, just a few days ago, perhaps. I was thinking that I could defeat the devil and this wouldn't be a problem for me. Now, what was I going to do? There's a difference when we're all together and as opposed to when we're alone. This is what James is talking about. He said, if anybody sees himself in the word and doesn't continue therein, how do you continue therein? How do you keep from being a forgetful hearer? It's easy. He gives you the key. If you're going to continue in the word of God, if you're going to receive the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul, then you're going to have to do the one and only one thing that's necessary to get the word engrafted or planted or rooted in your spirit rather than in your mind. And that is, you've got to say of yourself what the Bible says about you. Now, this is what we do in these meetings. These big meetings of Brother Hagin, he'd always lead us in confessions because he's trying to show us this is what you do. He just preaches for an hour or hour and a half, whatever he did, on a subject about who we are in Christ in some manner. And at the end, he'd, have us, uh, he'd lead us in a confession because he's trying to show you it's not enough just to hear the preaching. It's not enough just to hear the teaching of the word. You've got to make that word a part of you. And the only way you can do that is by saying what God's word says about you. That's how you continue therein. The forgetful hearer 
may say it when we're together, but doesn't continue to say it. And so the word never takes root in his heart. And so the transformation never occurs. Even though the word that he started with, even though the word that he heard was sufficient to transform him, to bring him into all the blessings of God, he doesn't continue to say it. He doesn't continue to speak what God's word says about himself. And as a result, the image that the word of God tells us and portrays to us of who we are in Christ is never fully developed. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the whole reason we've got the Bible is so that you see, the, see yourself in the image that God sees you. If you didn't know, or if I, uh, well, let's use yours. Let's say that I don't have any idea what kind of car you've got or what kind of car you drive or, or what you own or that type of thing. You could tell me that you have a car. Well, that would instantly give me an image in my mind of a car. But the more you described your car, if you gave me the color of it, if you gave me the make and the model of it, then I could walk out, if you gave me enough detail, I could walk out of here without ever having seen you in your car and find your car in the parking lot. Well, that's exactly what the Word of God is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to describe who we are in Christ to such a degree that we could find ourselves and that we create an image of who we are in Him even if when we look in a real mirror, a natural mirror, a physical mirror, we don't look to be the same thing that the word describes. John said this. John said, Beloved, now we are the, the sons of God, even though it doth not appear as we shall be. A modern day translation of that might be, We are already the sons of God, even though we might not look like it. It's the word telling us who we are. It's the word painting the picture, framing the image of who you are in Christ. One of the most important and greatest needs in the body of Christ is for the believer to see themselves like God sees them. It's the key to victory. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This is the story of creation. Beginning in verse uh, uh, verse 3, God says, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the night day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and it divided the waters from the waters, and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, verse 9, Let the waters be under the heaven, or under heaven, be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. Now notice verse 11. Verse 11 says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, and the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. Beginning in verse 11, I'm not sure what day would it be. The, uh, is that the third day? In the early days of creation, God establishes what might be and, and is appropriately could be called the law of Genesis. The law of Genesis is very simply this. Everything produces after its own kind. 
Everything produces after its own kind. Apple trees don't make pears. Everything produces after what it is in itself. The seed is in itself and the seed will produce exactly what it is. Everything produces after its own kind. It goes further and says in verse 12, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his, after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now please notice that we read this over and over again in the uh, creation account that God saw that it was good and so we take it for granted. But notice what God saw to be good. God saw that it was good that everything produces after its own kind. Apple trees make apple trees. Or apples who have seeds in them that make other apple trees. Sheep make sheep. Goats make goats. And so forth. And God saw that it was good. Everything produces after his own kind. Now notice in verse 26. We come down to day 6. To the creation of man. Verse 26. And God said let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words God's producing after his own kind. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, how are they supposed to have dominion? Is there a missing verse here? Is there something else that God said that we don't have record of? Did, did for God, for example, say, Now I've got a, an army of angels ready, standing on ready for you to where all you have to do is give the command and then they'll make sure that you exercise dominion and, and have control over the earth. Let me refer you. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in uh, Psalm 8, Speaking from the angel's perspective, verse 3, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, keep that in mind. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what's he talking about? He's talking about the creation of the moon and the stars. Then he says in verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. That word angels is the word Elohim. It means God himself. Thou hast made him a little lower than yourself and has crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, let me ask you a question. If the Bible says that we're to have dominion and God didn't tell Adam that he had a standing army ready to to, uh, uh, enforce his dominion. And if the Bible says that God gave man dominion over the works of his hands, we just read where God created the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and so forth, which Psalm 8 says is the work of his hands. How did God create that stuff? How did it happen? The only thing that we have record of, the only thing God gave us record of, the only thing that he felt important enough for us to see and know about this is that he made it through his words. 
And that's what's called the dominion over all the works in his hands. The things that he created with his words are called the works of his hands. And God created man in his own image. Now in chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, I think it's verse 7. It tells us again of uh, the creation of man. And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul or a living being. Now James says that the body without the spirit is dead. Now I want you to realize that God did not create man. He made him or formed him. He took the dust of the earth packed it together, made a giant Play-Doh figure or whatever, looked just like Adam, just looked exactly like Adam was going to look and going to appear. He put all the organs on the inside of him. He put the circulatory system in place, the nervous system in place, all the muscles, joints, tendons, ligaments, and so forth. He made Adam exactly the way that he intended for him to be. In physical form. But there's no life in the physical form. And then it says he breathed into him. The breath of life. And Adam became a living soul or a living being. So what was Adam? When God created man after his own image. What was Adam? Adam was an exact duplicate of God himself. An exact duplicate of God himself. It was the spirit that was breathed into man from God himself. That caused mankind to live. In other words. God produced after his own kind. What God looked upon and said. This is very good. What God gave dominion over all the works of his hands. Which is identified by the things that he spoke. The one to whom he gave command. To exercise that dominion in the earth. Was produced after God's own kind. An exact duplication. An exact duplication. Now, we know the purpose of him being created or formed. He was created or formed to have dominion. The Bible doesn't tell us how he was intended, God intended for him to have dominion until we recognize that the pattern that God has already told us about how the world was formed and created was exactly the pattern that man formed in God's own image, an exact duplication of God himself in spirit, not in body, but in spirit. Man was supposed to produce after his own kind and supposed to follow the pattern of his maker. In other words, the dominion that he was intended to exercise is through our words. That's why the Holy Ghost tells us time after time after time how important our words are And how important it is that we speak God's word. And that's the very pattern that James chapter 1 just told us about. Would transform us from defeat and into victory. It's through our words. It's through our words. Now over the centuries man forgot this. But he started off understanding it. Adam didn't have any trouble exercising dominion over the earth. Didn't have any trouble until the event in chapter 3. Where Satan deceives Eve and Adam goes along with it. Adam had no trouble whatsoever doing exactly what God intended for him to do. Now we don't know how long he was there. 
in the Garden of Eden before he fell. We usually assume that God made him on Friday and then by Monday afternoon he was gone or he fell, but we don't know that. There could have been generations. It could have been hundreds of years. We don't know. What we do know is that whatever period of time that was, Adam's not inquiring of the Lord about that dominion. He has understanding of how he was made. He's walking with God in the cool of the day. There was at least one day between him being created and him falling. He's walking with God in the cool of the day. And we don't have any record whatsoever that there's an inquiry about how God explained to him about dominion and the exercise of that dominion. He understands. He's made an exact duplication of God himself. As close to God as God could make him, that's what he did. And we see the pattern of how God produced the works of his hands, which was through the words that he spoke. He intended for mankind to do the same. Now, it's real easy for us to look at dominion or what God said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and think that man's... uh, the command that was given to Adam and Eve was just simply to have children. But if that were true, then every person, every man, every woman would naturally have a desire for children. And not everybody does. Most do, perhaps, but not everybody does. Paul even talked about having been made, himself having been made a condition where He was satisfied not to be married, satisfied not to have a wife. He said he was able to control his sexual desires without being married. But it was a special gift from God. So we have have examples, and certainly we all know of people, that don't have desire for children, whether they marry or not. So that can't be the entirety. That can't be the whole of what God meant when he said to have dominion and to produce or what it would mean for man to produce after his own kind. Although there would be part of it, it can't be all of it. In other words, what I'm getting around to is what I'm trying to explain is that when God explained or when God commanded man and gave man dominion over the, over the earth and over the works of his hands, he intended man to, be, to have dominion over everything that he put his hand to. So if you put these things together, it comes down to this. If you're going to fulfill whatever God's plan for your life is, you're going to have to see yourself the way God made you. You're going to have to see yourself the way the Bible describes you to be. Because whatever God, whatever God has given you to do in life, he expects you to have dominion and be a dominant factor in that area. If he gave you a gift to work in insurance, he wants you to dominate in the insurance industry. If he gave you a gift to be a mechanic, he wants you to dominate in the field of mechanics. If you're a lawyer, because that's what God wants you to do, he wants you to dominate in the field of law. If you work as a shopkeeper in retail sales, he wants you to dominate in the area of retail sales. God expects you to have dominion. He created you to have dominion 
in whatever area he guides you and leads you to in life. Dominion is a given from God's perspective. That's not for us. And that's why so often we have to work on our own self-image. We have to work on how we see ourselves. Because the Bible says in Proverbs, it says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, I'm running out of time, so let me, let me close here real quick. But do you remember over in James chapter 1? Matter of fact, turn back to James chapter 1. With this in mind, let's, let's look again at some scriptures that we looked at before. Beginning in verse 21 again, I'll read down through the verses and then we'll make our comments. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, lay aside the things of the world, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It's the engrafted word that transforms your thinking. It's the engrafted word, the word planted in your spirit, that enables you to see yourself like God sees you and transforms you through the renewing of the mind. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves, not being a doer of the word. We've already talked about doing the word, being confessing or speaking the word. If you're not speaking the word, you're deceiving yourself. Why? Because if you're not speaking the word, the word is not being planted in your spirit. And it's how you see yourself from within that you're going to live up to or live down to. For if a man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, doesn't speak what he hears, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. For he beholds himself, he sees who he is, but goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. How did he forget? He didn't continue to speak the word. He didn't continue to speak what God's word says about him and who he is in Christ. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... And continueth by speaking the word therein. He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer. Speaking the word is being a doer. But being a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. One translation says he'll be blessed in whatever he does. So what's the Bible telling us? It's telling us the key to success is to speak the word. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth or controlleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now notice the connection that he makes. He makes a connection between not controlling his tongue and deceiving his heart. Now what does that mean? That means to deceive your heart is to speak something contrary to what the Bible says you are in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 4.22 says, keep your heart with all diligence. It's talking about your spirit. Keep your heart with all diligence. Now, your spirit, for for the sake of time, we'll just make a quick definition here. Your spirit is always referred to in the Bible is that part of man, the real part of man, the eternal part of man, that is separate from your five physical senses. Now, it can certainly be influenced by your five physical senses, But it's a separate entity from your five physical senses. And so where it says in Proverbs 4.22, keep your heart with all diligence. For out of your heart, out of your spirit, 
flow the issues of life. Well, what are those issues of life? They're all the things that God provided for you, all the things that pertain to life and godliness that God has already provided for you through his divine power, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it says the most important thing in life is to keep your heart with all diligence because that's the key to victory. Keep your heart with all diligence. How do you do that? Well, the Bible says you deceive your heart by not controlling your words. It says you deceive your heart by speaking contrary or against what the Bible says about you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it doesn't look like what the Bible says about me is true. I know. That's why you need to say it. Because it's by saying the word, it's by speaking the word that you bring into reality that which the Bible says is true. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it flow the issues of life. You know the thing that they wanted to kill Jesus for? They mean the Jews. They wanted to kill Jesus first and foremost above everything else because he said he and his father were one. Because they understood that that meant that Jesus was claiming to be made in the exact likeness, a very duplication of God himself. Now let me ask you this. Why would the devil and those he influenced, in Jesus' case, religious people, and it's always going to fry religious people. Why would the devil be so upset about somebody claiming to be one with God, a duplication of God? Produced after God's own kind, in other words. Why would that be such a big deal to the devil? Because the devil knows something the church hadn't figured out, by and large. And that is when somebody starts seeing themselves the way God sees them, there's no stopping them. Absolutely no stopping them. There's no area of victory that they cannot obtain. There is no level of blessing that they cannot walk in. It comes down to one basic foundational truth, and that is if you begin to see yourself as the duplication of God that the Bible says you are. Remember God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the works of his hands. And he said that it was very good. This is the way God wants it to be. You don't have to talk him into it. He intends for you to have dominion over whatever area of life you operate in. That's the way he planned it. That's the way he wants it to be. And it comes down to one thing, and that is how you see yourself from within. The devil knows that when you start talking in these terms, you become a threat like there is no other threat to him in all of existence. He had to take Jesus out. Now, I've got another question for you real quick before we close. And that is, why do you think Jesus was able to do the works that he did and the miracles that he did? Isn't it a coincidence that Jesus, who saw himself as an exact duplication of God, created the image of God, the very life of God himself within him, just like there is within you and me since we're born again. Isn't it a coincidence that he was the one that was able to do the mighty wonders and miracles? He said himself, I'm not doing them. It's the Father in me that doeth the works. Well, how is the Father in him? Well, first and foremost... 
the Father was in him because he was the life of God here on the earth. The very same Spirit of God that's in you was in him too. Jesus prayed for the church that we would be one together with him just like he was one together with the Father and that together Christ in us, us in God, that we would be perfect in one just like he was perfect in God. An exact duplication in other words. You start seeing yourself like that. You become the supreme threat to the enemy. Because nothing becomes impossible. The key to victory, the key to dominion, is to see yourself the way God sees you. And you can only do that by speaking the word of God. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand. Why don't we make a confession before we go? Say this after me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The greater one lives in me. He that is greater than anything in the world, than any power of the enemy, is in me. I have been created, born again, into a new creature, the exact duplication of God himself. The life of God is in me. God has given me through his divine power all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through my words, nothing is impossible unto me. God has ordained for me to walk in victory in every area of life. Therefore, I walk in divine health. I walk in abundance. I walk in peace. I walk in all the blessings of God. The life of God, the very life of Jesus himself, is the life that's in me. Amen. Amen. Brother Hagin said something 37 years ago, 36 years ago, as a part of what the Lord gave him to, to, well, he was speaking by the inspiration of the Lord in the word of prophecy. And he said this. I don't remember the whole thing, but the last phrase of it, I'll never forget. He said this. He said, for it's speaking faith words and thinking faith thoughts that lift the heart out of defeat and into victory. that was branded on the inside of me and I'll never forget it throughout eternity it's speaking faith words and thinking faith thoughts that lift the heart out of defeat and into victory amen say it after me victory is mine because of the life of God in me amen God bless you thank you for being with us